Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 9? Matthew chapter 9. After spending the summer in the Psalms, we are back to the Gospel according to Matthew. If you're new to Trinity, we began preaching through Matthew last fall and we made it all the way to the end of Matthew 9 before the summer began. Those earlier sermons are recorded online if you'd like to go back and catch up. But from the very beginning of this gospel, we've pointed out two themes. The first is that this book is about Jesus. That may seem obvious at first, but it's amazing how easy it is to get our attention caught up in so many other things, even important things. How Jesus interprets the Old Testament, what we're to think about God's law, the personalities of the disciples, the concerns of the Pharisees, and so on. But the main purpose of this book, from the word go, is to tell us who Jesus is. And the teaching of Matthew is that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He is the eternal Son of God who has now become a man. And Matthew tells us that he has come as fully God and fully man to do one thing above all else. The angel tells Joseph in Matthew 1.21 that he shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He is the infinite God becoming finite, like you and me, so that he can take the curse of our sin and pay its penalty and destroy its effects. So the Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus. But the second theme in Matthew is just as important for us to not miss. Because the other thing that we see from Jesus time and time again in this gospel is that he demands a response from us. No one is neutral after they encounter Jesus. They see his authority over creation and over our lives and his compassion and his love for sinners and his call to discipleship. And you get two broad responses. People will accept him or reject him. They will come to him for rest, or they will walk away in sorrow. They will fall at his feet rejoicing that he forgives sinners, or they will seethe in anger that he would suggest that they need saving. And this is where that question that Jesus asks the disciples in Matthew 16 is so important. They're all giving these theories about what other people think of Jesus. And finally, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And that question isn't just put to the disciples. It's put to every one of us in here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you see that he is God, the true king of the world, and that in him is life and joy, and forgiveness, and love? Or do you see in him someone trying to steal your joy away from you? Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
And you must answer that call. How will you respond to this Jesus? Will you come to Him in humility and neediness? Or will you stay seated in your own comfort and self-sufficiency? So that's what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. Who Jesus is and how we will respond to Him. And those same themes show up in different ways and on different levels again and again in this Gospel. It begins with Jesus' origins in chapters 1 and 2, and then the beginnings of His ministry in chapters 3 and 4. And then if you remember, He very quickly turns to His teaching about the kingdom that He came to bring and how He related to God's Old Testament law in chapters 5 to 7. Then at the end of the spring, we saw chapters 8 and 9 reinforce Jesus' authority over creation and disease and demons, but especially over our lives in His radical calls to discipleship. Now in these next few weeks, we're going to see another extended teaching of Jesus through chapter 10, this time about the mission of the disciples. And what this section is going to press on us is that Jesus won't let us pick and choose what parts of him we want or what parts of his plan we like. When he says that he will save his people from their sins, he doesn't have a brainstorming session with us to think up ways to do that. He tells us exactly how it will be done, and our job is to rejoice, receive it, and follow him in it. We're going to get some of that today and especially in the following weeks because today Jesus begins to lay out part of his plan for helping his people in the midst of their sin and helplessness. But this part of the plan probably is not what you and I would have chosen. But before we hear from God's word, let's ask that he would help us to hear it and receive it. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew Chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, and we'll go through verse 15 of chapter 10. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, 
and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this passage today, I want us to see three things that we learn from it. First, I want us to see Jesus' compassion for harassed and helpless sheep. In verses 35 and 36. Next, I want us to see his plan for their help at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And then we're going to see his teaching about the beginnings of that plan in those last 11 verses. The passage begins on what might sound like an echo from somewhere else, and that's because it is. Verse 35 of chapter 9 says almost verbatim, what Matthew 4.23 said at the opening of Jesus' ministry. And it says that Jesus went through the towns and villages doing three things. Teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This forms a bookend for this section of the gospel of Matthew, chapters 4 through 9. But it also propels us into this next section. Matthew transitions into a new section of teaching, and it's a teaching that is specifically with reference to the leaders that Jesus is going to send into the world, the twelve apostles. But he begins this section with the heart of Jesus that is behind that sending. Look at verse 36 with me. When he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The picture that we get is of Jesus working tirelessly. He's been going from town to town on the move, and in every place he went, he was teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the good news, and then as people came to him, he healed all their sicknesses and diseases. And as the people keep coming and coming to Jesus... The text says that he looks at them. And Matthew tells us that in looking upon them, these crowds that are coming to him for help, he had compassion on them. I want you to remember that Jesus is a man. He is the eternal son of God, but he has also taken a true human nature to himself. He got tired. He got hungry. He got worn out. 
Picture yourself in one of those moments. Maybe some of you can relate. You have days at work where people just keep coming to you for help. The knocks on the door never stop. The phone never stops ringing. Maybe you're someone whose kids are always running up asking for something else. Or your family or friends always need a favor. How do you feel in those moments when you look up and instead of seeing the reward of a freed up schedule, you see another crowd of people needing more help? What does your heart do toward those people? Jesus' heart is filled with compassion. Compassion doesn't come from personality or a mere feeling. Compassion is love meeting with need. As they come to him with more needs, Jesus isn't annoyed with them or short-tempered with them or irritated or aggravated. He is filled with compassion for them. And Matthew tells us why. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed is to be bombarded from, with trouble from the outside. Helpless is to realize that you don't have the resources in yourself to do anything about it. And then Jesus makes a comparison. He says they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that sounds pretty churchy, so we don't really think much about it. But it's an odd comparison. Remember, Jesus is healing their diseases and afflictions. But he looks at their helplessness and says they are like sheep who don't have a shepherd. And this clues us into the fact that Jesus is seeing more when he looks at them than their physical ailments. Leprosy and fevers and blindness are not remedied by someone having a shepherd. What Jesus is seeing when he looks at them is their spiritual neediness. We've talked about this throughout the Gospel of Matthew and it will continue on. Jesus attends to the physical needs of people. He doesn't ignore them as if they shouldn't care about their physical bodies. But remember the healing of the lame man at the beginning of Matthew 9. He comes to Jesus seeking healing so he can walk, but Jesus changes the focus. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Later, he's going to tell his apostles that he is sending them to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is not overflowing in compassion as he looks at these people primarily because of their physical helplessness. His compassion wells up within him because of their spiritual helplessness. And the next thing he does is moves into an answer to that problem. What will he do for these helpless and harassed people, the people who don't have a shepherd? Look at verse 37 with me. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice that Jesus has changed the metaphor again. He had compassion on these needy crowds and said that they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Now, instead of comparing the crowds to sheep, he compares them to a field. A field of grain that is ready to be harvested. Often in the Old Testament, the harvesting of a field was a picture of the Lord's judgment at the end of the age. Jesus will come back to that metaphor in the Gospel of Matthew, especially when he gets to his parables in Matthew 13. But here, he's clearly not talking about judgment for these people in response to his compassion. No, calling them a field ready to be harvested is much more like what he calls the first four disciples to in Matthew 4. Remember, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The call of the fishermen is to bring the fish in. The call of a laborer in the field is to bring the grain in. And the call of the apostles that we will see in a moment is to bring harassed and helpless people into the kingdom of heaven. Notice how surprising this must have been to the disciples who were listening. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king who is declaring that his kingdom is at hand. He's the one who has come into the world to save his people from their sins. And so you would assume that when he sees people in need, especially sheep without a shepherd, he would have gone on to give a speech about how he is the true shepherd that they need. And that's true. He says as much in John 10. But that's not what he says here. Maybe he could have also seen the people harassed and helpless and given a discourse on loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, the members of the church being the body of Christ and the family of God to one another in need. He could have easily gone that route, and he does numerous times in the Gospels and then on into the New Testament letters. But that's not what he says here. Instead, Jesus tells them that there need to be more laborers in the field. The laborers that Jesus says we need are not more messiahs. Jesus is the only one of those. It's not simply more Christians, though that is longed for throughout the Bible. No, the laborers that Jesus says we need more of are Christian leaders. In our terms, pastors and elders. You can see this in the terms that are used for them. First, he says that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. This was a phrase used in the Old Testament, Numbers 27, 1 Kings 22, and especially Ezekiel 34. And in each place, it was a reference to the failings of human leaders that God had appointed over his people. Immediately following this statement, what do we see? Chapter 10, verse 1, he calls to himself his 12 disciples. In verse 2, they're revealed to be the 12 apostles. And then in verses 5 and 6, he sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to proclaim his message. We see this as well throughout the New Testament following. Jesus sends the apostles out in Matthew 28 to all nations. Paul and Barnabas go throughout the cities in Syria and Turkey, appointing elders in every church. Paul tells Titus in his letter to him to appoint elders in every town of Crete. The plan of Jesus is not simply to be the shepherd that his people need. His plan is to send under shepherds, 
pastors and elders to call forth and care for his flock. This is where it gets easy for us to question Jesus' plan. We live in an anti-authoritarian time and culture. No one wants to hear that someone else has been appointed to lead them. We're also not unaware of the abuses of pastors and elders in the church. Probably every person in here has a story or knows a story of a leader in the church using their authority for their own gain instead of to help the sheep. That's actually what Jesus is referring to when he talks about these sheep without a shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God sends Ezekiel to condemn the leaders of Israel for using the sheep for their own gain instead of shepherding the sheep. They are, in a gross picture, eating the sheep instead of feeding the sheep as they were meant to. But even those abuses, even those failures, do not stop Jesus from saying that we need good leaders. We need pastors and elders in the church. The answer to bad leadership is not no leadership. Rather, the answer to bad leadership is good leadership. And here Jesus tells us that part of his compassionate response to seeing harassed and helpless sheep is to send laborers to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. And the immediate application, the one command that he gives in verse 38, is to pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We first saw Jesus' response to crowds of hurting people. He poured forth in compassion for them. Is that your response to your family members and co-workers and neighbors, especially the ones in whom you see the most need, the compassionate love of Jesus? But the next response is to pray. You absolutely should pray for them. Pray that the Lord would save them. Pray that he would bring a knowledge of Jesus as their Savior and forgiveness of their sins and true life in him. But have you ever thought when you see them to pray for more godly leaders in the church? I heard a pastor from another denomination this week say that they have over 50 churches in their denomination who have been searching for a pastor and who have been told there aren't any. Their seminaries aren't producing enough graduates, and so there aren't enough pastors to lead their churches. And that's true for more than just that denomination, our own denomination. The Presbyterian Church in America is seeing a growing number of pastors nearing retirement, and there are not enough pastors in the pipeline to continue pastoring our churches. And that's just to stay even. We don't want to just stay even, we want to grow. Many of you drive here from towns that are lacking in healthy gospel-preaching churches. We would love to plant or help plant more churches in Shelbyville and McMinnville and Smyrna. Do you know what we have heard in our research and conversation about pursuing those things? There aren't any church planters. There are not pastors to go to those places and lead churches. 
pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that the Lord would raise up godly and humble pastors and elders to go, to love lost people and proclaim his gospel and care for his church. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The next section turns to the first sending of the apostles. The twelve disciples or apostles are named in verses 2 to 4. And then they're sent out in verses 5 to 15. The rest of chapter 10 is Jesus teaching them about their mission and what they need to know. We're just going to see the beginning of that here. But before we read it, I want you to realize that this teaching is on two levels for us. The first is the specific sending of these 12 apostles during Jesus' ministry. That's the immediate circumstance. But these words also would have been largely applicable to the post-resurrection church who was reading this, who Matthew wrote this to. There are things clearly particular to the apostles, but there are also principles that apply to all future leaders of God's people. And we need to be attentive to both of those levels as we read. So let's read verses 5 to 15 again. It says, Then Jesus sent out, these twelve rather, Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There's a lot there in Jesus' teaching, but just briefly, I want us to see four things that he is teaching us about this mission. Their mission is limited, first, Second, their mission is not original. Third, their mission is not for them. And then fourthly, their mission has eternal consequences. First, their mission is limited. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus explicitly tells the apostles that they are not allowed to go to the Gentile or Samaritan towns. Instead, they are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This reminds us that this is particular to this time in Jesus' ministry. Remember, Jesus hasn't denied help to Gentiles so far, but he has not burst open the gates like he will when after his resurrection, he commands his disciples to make disciples of all nations. So this mission is limited in a way that the future mission of the church will not be. Second, their mission is not original. 
Verses 7 and 8 tell us about their ministry in both word and deed. Verse 7 says that they will proclaim a message. And that message is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 8 tells us that they will heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What should strike us about both those things is that they are exactly what Jesus has taught and what he has been doing. The disciples are ambassadors for Jesus. They aren't being sent on their own personal mission. Nor are they being sent to jumpstart some next chapter in the message of salvation. Jesus came to talk about the kingdom and the forgiveness of sins, but they're being sent out to talk about a new world order and the age of the Spirit. Note, they are ambassadors who have been given the exact same message. That Jesus is king, and he has come to bring his kingdom to this earth. And this is something that we need to pay attention to, because the temptation to be original in what we teach has come right down to the present. The Apostle Paul gives us the pattern of gospel teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The content of the teaching is not new. It is the same. Jude, in his letter, calls this message the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Jesus has not called us to innovation and new ideas for his message. It is the same message that has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. And what he has called us to is faithfulness in proclaiming that gospel message. The third thing we see with this mission is that the apostles' mission is not for them. We see that at the end of verse 8 through verse 10. Part of what's going on in those verses is that this is going to be a short mission. Unlike the mission to the end of the earth that follows Jesus' death and resurrection. So it seems like what is being commanded is that they not do any sort of fundraising or rainy day fund, but they depend on the hospitality of faithful people in the towns that they go to. But there's also something important going on here with the relationship between ministry and money. That last sentence in verse 8 says it most clearly. You received without paying, give without pay. The principle is that no church leader is to charge people for ministering to them. You might hear that and say, Mitchell, don't you and Ryan bring home a salary? And that's true, we do. The last phrase of verse 10, the laborer deserves his food, is later used by the Apostle Paul to say that believers ought to give freely to care for those who lead them. But what is clear from these two principles is that a pastor does not get paid in exchange for the ministry that he gives. Instead, he gets paid with the free gifts of the church in order that he might minister. I should never walk down from a sermon and hold out my hand for a check. Ryan doesn't finish with a counseling session and say, you can see Sabrina for billing on the way out. That is not how ministry works. 
Ministry does not come with a price tag. As Jesus says, the one ministering received the gospel without money and without price. And we have no right to turn around and charge for that same gospel. What many of you know, even as we laugh, is that this is a perennial problem in the church. Lauren and I read the Robin Hood stories to our kids not too long ago. And throughout the story, Robin Hood keeps running in to the Bishop of Hereford a notoriously rich bishop who uses his position in the church to line his own pockets. Peter commands elders not to shepherd the flock for shameful gain. One of the qualifications of an elder is that he cannot be a lover of money. The work of a minister is meant to be a work of compassion, of self-sacrifice, of spending yourself for the sake of the lost and those in need not a way to exploit God's people for your own comfort and decadence. Jesus teaches them that their mission is not for them. And then finally, Jesus teaches them that their mission has eternal consequences. This is the teaching of verses 11 to 15. Jesus tells them what they are to do in each town or village they enter. And as we saw before, They were to find out if anyone would be hospitable to them in those towns. Do you see those two phrases in verse 14? If anyone will receive you and listen to your words. In each town, they are to find people who are receptive to the gospel. That's what's going on in verses 11 through 13 with the greeting of the household and and bringing peace upon it. They are to make themselves known as ambassadors of Jesus. And so the peace they are bringing is not some vague peace and happiness or good vibes. This is the peace of Jesus. The peace that only comes from knowing God who came to save us from our sins. This is the ultimate message that Jesus' ambassadors are bringing. But look also what we see in verses 14 to 15. So far, the directions have been pretty straightforward. But what we see in these verses is the expectation of rejection and opposition. Just like Jesus has been opposed, his apostles will be opposed. Verse 14 says, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There will be people who hear the message of the king and refuse to listen to his words. They refuse to receive King Jesus, and so they fail to come into his kingdom. And this is where the identity of Jesus is so important. He's not just the next self-help guru whose message is one among many. He is the king. Not just the king for now, but the king of ages. He is the God who is the creator and redeemer of the world. And so to reject Jesus is to reject life. Not just life here and now, but eternal life. We spoke at the beginning about Jesus' compassion for those who are harassed and helpless. But we shouldn't assume that he has come just to bring a short-term relief and comfort. No, what is at stake in the message of Jesus 
is eternal life. Your response to Jesus' words will determine whether the day of his return is the joyous day of your salvation or the terrible day of your judgment. His arms are open wide to receive the harassed and helpless, the lost sheep, those weighed down by the burden of their sin. But to refuse to come to Jesus is to refuse to come to life. So there is one thing to do above all other things to do. The application of every word of Jesus is to come to him. Repent and believe the gospel. This is true if you have never known Jesus. There is no prerequisite of cleaning up your life first or getting your sin under control before you come to him. The only prerequisite is to know that you need him. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I plead with you, come to Jesus. But this is also true for those who already know Jesus. The application is not different. Every Christian who trusts in Jesus is still the man in Mark 9 saying, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And so to us too, the application is to come to Jesus. Come to him for comfort and for life, and for cleansing from your sin. Brothers and sisters, come to Jesus, that your soul may live. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are those harassed and helpless. We know, because of our experience, and because your word tells us, that we have nothing in ourselves to help ourselves in our plight. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work in us, that you would give us faith in Jesus, that you would give us strong trust in him, that we would look upon him and see not annoyance or irritation, but that we would truly see his compassion for sinners and that we would come to him. Would you work that in us now? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.